Your hay it is mowed and your corn is reaped. Your barns be full and your hovels heaped. Come, boys, come, come, boys, come and merrily roar of a Welcome to Scores and Fours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by Sumley Joe Mott, that's me, and radio host Emily Reese. Today we're talking about harvests. Obviously, I'll talk about songs, music, classical music, uh, all about harvest time, which is where we are right now. And I'll talk about harvest itself uh, of the grapes, as well as uh, some harvest festivals. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 a month or as much as you want on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash scoresandpours. There, we'll also post our playlist and wine list. And you can buy merch there, too. We're praying so long like a book learned sot Till pudding and dumpling are burnt to the pot Burnt to the pot Hello, Joe Mott. What's up, Emily Reese? Happy harvest. Happy harvest. All my homies that are harvesting their grapes right now, I usually, you know, people, winemakers, grape growers, they get back to you within 24 to 48 hours. Yeah, now it's never. <laughs> they're busy. <laughs> yeah. They're harvesting grapes and making things happen. Yeah, they're like creating the the liquid nourishment that we all love, especially over the winter. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. Why are we talking about harvest now? Obviously, it's the time of year where in the Northern Hemisphere, people are harvesting grapes the world over. California, Turkey, the Republic of Georgia, anywhere in Europe, where it's obviously a grape-growing region for wine. They are picking grapes, and through the next couple weeks and months, we'll be turning that into wine. It's a really emotional time of year uh, for, I think, people that live in those regions, but also you know, for the grape growers themselves and winemakers. I mean, this is something that a lot of them have been doing for centuries. And granted, yeah, there are a lot of newbies to the scene. But the first time I remember that I ever participated in a harvest, it's like it wasn't even mine. And it was really emotional to like be participating in a process that is thousands of years old. And it's so emotional for so many reasons, right? It's historical, but it's also unlike beer where you can make it, make it, make it, make it. Oh, I don't like it. Dump it, make it, make it, make it. You have one chance every year to do this right. And grape growers and winemakers, um, sometimes they're synonymous with each other and other times it's a, it's a two-step chain. You have people making a decision based on they're at the mercy of weather. So if they decide, oh, let's hang on because we want these grapes to be perfectly it's called physiologically ripe, and what we mean by that is they are phenolically ripe. They're kind of used interchangeably, but you get a lot of smell, beautiful aromas, but you also get, you know, the seeds are ripe. They're not bitter. The skins are ripe. They're not bitter. And if you wait too long, oops, frost, bye-bye harvest, hail, bye-bye harvest, it could rain. And all of a sudden now you have to wait even longer because it's called drying out your grapes. Grapes will soak up all that water. You don't want dilute wine, um, many in many cases. So people will not then have to wait a few days for the. And then what happens if it keeps raining? Oh, and now we got mildew and fungus, and bye bye harvest. So there's so many reasons why it's emotional to get those grapes off the vine. But then once the fermentation process starts and people are involved, and it's just it's really really a cool time of year. Yeah, and as a result of it being such an important time of year, whether it's wine or corn or broccoli or whatever we're talking about, mm-hmm. there's a lot of music about it. And so we're going to hear some some music that relates to harvest from uh, some really old music from the 1600s all the way up to 
uh, 20th century music. So Should yeah. I squirt some wine in our mouths first? Please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, I brought today, I'm wearing a ridiculous scarf that I got at, I used to live in Logroño, the heart of La Rioja, and I would attend the harvest festival there that lasts about a week. And do I need to go again? Maybe not. I mean, it's kind of like Oktoberfest for wine. They're just like gazillions of people guzzling gazillions of liters of wine. Um, but it's really fun. And so I'm wearing a scarf to commemorate that, which we'll throw that up on the website. And then um, I'm, I'm carrying with me a bota. And this bota is about a liter. It's a leather sack that uh, holds wine. I never put anything too complex in it because that's not the point. The point is to just have wine at the ready you don't even need glassware because the opening is about a millimeter in diameter. And you just hold it up about a, you know, anywhere from a couple centimeters to, I like, you know, I prefer like a three foot away, <laughs> three feet away from my face and squeeze in this stream of deliciousness comes into your mouth, which it's historic because farmers used to, you know, bring these with them out to the fields throw them in the river if you need to keep it cold for some reason. Sometimes people would put water in here as well, but traditionally it's wine. And now it's become like a harvest thing, a party thing. I consider it like, hey, you're going to a sporting event. You don't want to drink terrible anything. Just bring one of these, put it between your coat and your t-shirt. Who's going to notice that? No one. <laughs> here we go. Amazing. It amazes <sighs> me that you never spill it. Oh, wait, maybe you did. Maybe a couple drops. But that's good. That's I'm seasoning the shirt, you see. Very well done. She's a professional, everyone. <laughs> go for it. Go for it, Emily Reese. Yes. Yes. Got a few centimeters away. Maybe a, a good few inches, yeah. actually. That was good. I got a little scared. I also was hitting the microphone with my arm. <laughs> At least you didn't spray it on the microphone. Exactly. <laughs> Well, let's listen to, to accompany that nice squirt. Let's listen to, are we purcelling first? Is that what yeah, you Yeah, we're going to listen to music by Henry Purcell. And Purcell, Purcell excuse me, Purcell. Yeah. Henry Purcell, British composer, uh, British Baroque composer. Um, Henry Purcell lived from 1659 to 1695. Let me give you a little context. One of the most important, Brit uh, one of the most important Baroque composers was Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach was born in 1685. So 10 years before Purcell died, Bach was born. Bach dies in 1750. The Baroque era ends. So that's just a little context hmm. to, to demonstrate that Purcell was what we would consider earlier in the Baroque era uh, because of uh, when he lived. So Purcell wrote a bunch of operas, and one of them was called King Arthur. And he wrote it in 1691, and in it is a song called Harvest Home. Harvest Home. Um, and I'll just read you a little bit of the lyrics here of Harvest Home, although we'll hear them in just a moment. By the way, uh, John Dryden, the poet, was Purcell's librettist, which means John Dryden wrote the words, what is referred to as the libretto, for the opera. So this is a, a, a words by John Dryden. Your hay it is mowed and your corn it is reaped. Your barns will be full and your hovels heaped. Come, my boys, come, come, my boys, come, and I'll merrily roar out harvest home. Please read the part where he talks about ale, because I like that oh, okay. part, indeed. <laughs> um, we'll toss off our ale till we cannot stand, and hay for the honor of old England. Old England, old England, and hay for the honor of old England. So let's listen to Purcell's Harvest Home. Your hay it is mowed and your corn is reaped. Your barns be full and your hovels heaped. Come, boys, come, come, boys, come, and merrily roar out a harvest home. 
harvest home, harvest home, and merrily for a harvest home. This just makes me thirsty. I must say. Here comes your favorite part. We'll toss up our ale till we cannot stand and pay for the honor of old England. Old England, old England, and pay for the honor of old England. Old England, old England, and pay for the honor of old England. Let's get the wheat out of the fields and go drink. <laughs> Yes. yes. Yes, please. Yes. What is interesting about harvest and something that maybe a lot of people, I mean, even I don't really think much about it, is that in the northern hemisphere, so this is happening between, you know, August and October. Some people are harvesting even later into November, but, you know, it depends on the style of wine you're making. If you're wanting to make a dessert wine, sometimes you're even harvesting as late as December, January. Now, flip hemispheres, they're harvesting like between February and March, or excuse me, February and April. And then, so for them, it's the same. They might extend it a couple months. Think about that. Harvest is happening for grapes and wine for six months out of our year, depending on the hemisphere. A lot of stress and emotion is going on. And like I think of, you know, when I've been, was working harvest at a few different places on both hemispheres, sometimes harvest lasts a couple days. You have a really small outfit that doesn't have a lot of land. You know, they're getting their grapes in fairly quickly. But especially if you don't have a lot of space, you need to be really cognizant of getting things in, letting them start to ferment, moving them around. If you're a bigger outfit, I mean, there's there have been places I've worked where they've harvested for months. Like, harvest starts and lasts like a month and a half. And then you're cycling through fer fermentation is starting, you're getting fruit in, you're moving fruit around, you're putting fruit that's already finished fermenting into, uh, you know, into a particular vessel. It's physically exhausting, but it's a very mentally exhausting time, especially nowadays for winemakers that are making their living. You know, if it was just a an added bonus and part of your caloric intake, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. you want it, but it, it's not life or death. I mean, for me, it would be life or death. Let's all be <laughs> clear. But another interesting thing to consider is just the actual manual talking about harvesting. So anytime I've harvested grapes, which that was like the first year, and then I'm like, do I really need to go do that for months on end? I don't. But to go out and like snip grapes, you use something called a succotur, which they're kind of like fancy little scissors that get really sticky. You know how many cuts, stitches, Fingers are lost at, uh, during harvest because of those stupid little scissors. <laughs> but you you have the ability to say, oh, I want to get that bunch. Oh, I don't want to get that bunch because it's not fully ripe. You know, you have people manually that are very quick or not, but they're making this decision every vine, every bunch. Wow. Get a mechanical harvester in there and just look up mechanical grape harvesting, and you'll see these things that can shake so fast that they can they will shake bunches off the vine and they can do one acre in 40 minutes. Wow. So imagine, yes, you're saving a lot of time, mm -hmm. but there's no sort of, 
you know, you're not being able to do any quality control if yeah. that's your MO in, in the vineyard. So that's kind of, I, 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 do I prefer hand harvested wines? Of course I do. Do I see the point? I mean, you're not going to have, let's be honest, yellowtail is, wouldn't cost what it did if they hand harvested it, you know? So yeah. in some cases that can be good for certain people, certain budgets. I don't think many folks know that harvest during harvest time, you are up at 6.30 a.m. and you sometimes get to the fields and you're freezing and you go work until about noon, and then you're really hot, and you usually are stripping down, you might have a, a nice communal lunch with people, have a couple glasses of wine, and get back to business. And I was, I'm more, more often than not, I'm in the cellar working, like receiving fruit. But then you don't go to bed. You don't go home until like between midnight and two in the morning. And so it's just like the longest ass day of sticky <laughs> and there's like, there's, you're sticky all day. You get home and you're, everything sticks to you. All you want is like, are like three beers and a hot shower. Yeah. And yet you have to be planning tomorrow what's happening, arranging for pickers, arranging for, it's like the most, I don't know, it's an incredible time of year, bee stings, mm. wasp stings, earwigs, these little things that'll like, they're all over bunches and they come, they're like biting everybody that's sorting, to, everybody's like complaining that they have like bites and you're like, you have like 19 first aid kits, <laughs> like OSHA hates people during this time because there's lots of forklifts and climbing and I don't know. I'm just going, now I'm reminiscing. I won't do that. Let's listen <laughs> to more music. Oh, all right. Let's listen to a piece called The Harvest. It's a tone poem. We've talked about tone poems before. This is from an Italian composer in the Romantic era, late Romantic. 1885 to 1951 was uh, when Giuseppe Moulet lived, and he uh, wrote this piece in 1936. Moulet uh, was also an educator in Italy. He worked at the conservatory in uh, Palermo, and then he also worked at the National Academy in St. Cecilia for 20 years. And also he was a cellist. So some of his music has really beautiful uh, cello uh, passages in it. And he also wrote some beautiful like solo cello piano stuff. Um, but yeah, this is his tone poem called La Vendemia. Yeah? La Vendemia. Perfect. La Vendemia. From the Italian Giuseppe Moulet. The Harvest. Timpani is making me want to drink wine like I would at a harvest festival at a bar. So I'll pour this into little squat glasses for us. It'll be fun to taste the difference out of the glass than the bolter. Nice little romp. Yeah, what is that instrument? Oh, those are brass. What mm -hmm. is it? What is it? Trumpets with mutes in Okay. Oh, yep. cool. Consordino. Consordino. <laughs> Which makes me say amiboca. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. One of the things I find cool about this piece is that it has this like kind of like Turkish flair because yeah. of the snare drum and the bass drum or the timpani. Kettle drums, they're also called timpani, can be called kettle drums. Uh, also, the did I say snare drum already? I said mm -hmm. snare drum already. And also the kind of 
scale that he's using is kind of a Middle Eastern flair to it, which yeah. is pretty fun. Good so, call. Yeah, I think that's kind of cool. It's a little bit of a heavy-handed piece, in my opinion. It's like... All, everything about Harvest is heavy-handed. Yeah. <laughs> let's, I mean, let's think of, like, we think about emotion and blah, 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 but I'm going to start talking about the church. I mean, so it just goes on. Yeah, you're right. And if we think about where wine, probably the genesis of wine... Republic of Georgia and quickly moving, you know, west to the area around Mesopotamia. So this is almost perfect for that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Makes me want to drink out of this little Welch's squat glass again. <laughs> The composer Moulet also wrote film scores, and this to me is very filmy in that way. You know, it's very soundtracky, which I kind of like, which like, is a kind of a meaningless thing to say. And I can like get... someone jumping and doing in slow mo, like a couple different <laughs> somersaults or whatever, uh, flips into the pool of wine. Yes, or riding their horses out to the fields or something. You know, galloping. Yeah, with their basket for grapes on their backs? Yes. And their bota. I mean, yes. Of course. Hopefully two of them a person. Yeah. It's a neat little piece. It's about 10 minutes long and fun stuff there from Giuseppe Moulet. Well, I liked when you mentioned that it's kind of heavy-handed. I think that's a perfect segue to what I'm going to talk about because I'm going to go on to, um, I'm going to skip the part where I was going to start talking about my hernias that I can thank Harvest for. Um, The multiple ones I have had surgery on, I won't do that. I will talk about the church was very, it was typically very involved in, you know, the Renaissance and medieval when we talk about the the hot and heavy time of the church. The way they were involved, you know, it wasn't, obviously the wine has been used for sacramental purposes for centuries, but they would always take a bunch of grapes in most places in Europe. They would take a bunch of grapes, they would um, bless them, and then they would have, at the beginning of harvest, and then they would have like a Thanksgiving type of service post-harvest and when the fermentation started to give thanks and, you know, yes, give thanks for the blood of Christ. (laughs) Let's live as monks. Let's be truthful. They needed to just have some wine. Mm -hmm. That's So, blood of Christ maybe getting drunk on the side. <laughs> no offense, though. <laughs> I mean, it's it's actually, there are documents out there that, like, talk about the ingestion of alcohol in, you know, whether it's beer in the northern latitudes in Europe and wine in the southern latitudes where, like, yes, they would drink it with meals and it's communal and it would be, you know, they would either use it for um, sacramental purposes and also caloric intake. But as we get to the latter parts, uh, you know, closer to present day. I mean, they're living on a very meager income with what they're, you know, a lot of times with Trappist monasteries and such with what they're selling. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, there's not a need for wine anymore for caloric intake. And if you're drinking wine at lunch, you're you're not participating in the sacrament. So you're just now you're just drinking. Yeah. <laughs> and when beers used to be four percent for the monks to drink, that's not so much the case anymore. Yes, they're drinking table beer, but sometimes the table beer has a bit more alcohol in it. So <laughs> I don't know, whatever. We can nice. edit all that out or not. You be the judge of that, Emily Reese, because <laughs> Emily Reese always does our first edits. I wanted to piggyback off of the and kind of make it a little more lighthearted because it's super fun. 
And I wanted to quote a source, the Oxford Companion to Wine, because they have a really good few pages on harvest and harvest around the world. And there's one part that talks about, I'm going to quote it here. It says, at the end of harvest, a certain amount of horseplay almost inevitably accompanies the picking of the last rows. And horseplay, people get into trouble. You know, people are like kind of the last few rows are just sort of like you go out to the last few rows the next day and you're like, How's half of this forgotten? Like, we need to bring all that in. I just think it's kind of funny. It's interesting to also think about the the role that females played because women helped harvest, no question. But especially in France and really strongholds of of like regal winemaking, like Germany and the, during the you know fifteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds, etc. Women they would help harvest, but the main role of the women was to prepare meals. For people, and uh, they would normally be preparing, you know, a, a meal for a family a few times a day. Now they're making lunch and dinner for sometimes dozens, if not a hundred plus people that are harvesting. And these women have compiled amazing treasures, family heirlooms of books with recipes nice. that they would write down and they would pass it on from generation to generation of, of what they prepared for a menu, the, where they got their ingredients. They would talk about the weather and when harvesting started and harvesting finished, where the men, that would be the men's job because they would be the winemakers. It actually, the women did a lot of the documenting. They were also played the role of medic because like I talked about, lots of and people are drinking in the fields too during yeah. this time. So people would lose fingers and people would like the, you know, the someone whoever's driving the cart would maybe drive over someone's foot and then you'd have to whatever. And so the women would be playing this role of like they'd be cooking, they'd be documenting, they'd be nurses, medics. And that's like really interesting to think about. Like I'd love to get my hand on one of those old. Do you know if any have ever been published or collated in any way uh, and for the public? Not that I know of. Cool. Easy enough. Thanks for that research project, Emily. Yes, exactly. Add it to my <laughs> add it to my list. Exactly. One of the things I want to point out about the music that we're hearing is all three pieces share something in common, even though they're from very different worlds, different times. Um, they all are what we would call a compound meter, which is when the beat is divided into three instead of two. So like one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, things along those lines. Maybe one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Maybe something like that. Um, and that type of meter is often in music associated with pastoral music. So rustic music, bucolic music, music that is evocative of the outdoors and nature and peasants and those kinds of things. And so it's a, been a common theme for a long time, even the Henry Purcell song. If we just listen to the first couple seconds of it, we'll hear that. Your hay it is mowed and your corn is reaped. Your barns be full and your hovels heaped. Come, boys, come, come, boys, come, and merrily roar out a harvest home. And then we can go back to listen to the Giuseppe Moulet and hear that as well. We hear it also in the piece we're going to hear right now. It comes from Aaron Copeland. This is a piece called The Promise of Living, and it comes from his opera called The Tenderland. 
And this is actually a, a really great example of Copeland taking an American folk song and turning it into something his own. So this he uses a revivalist uh, tune called Zion's Walls. And so he arranged that for voice and piano and then also used Zion's Walls in his opera, The Tenderland. And he calls it, in The Tenderland, he calls it The Promise of Living and gives it different words. So he didn't make the words, but... (laughs) Okay. Did you follow all of that? (laughs) I'll just drink more over here. Just kidding. (laughs) So this is a a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. It's a very slow build uh, in that it it just starts really quiet and kind of slow and just builds in intensity and and number of players and things like that until the, the end. It's really gorgeous. And let's just listen to a little bit. We'll kind of skip around through it. This, and this is the finale I'm seeing, right, of the yep. work? Okay. Well, yeah, so the Tenderland, the opera, wasn't popular at all. It didn't. It just didn't do well. So Copeland took some of the music from it and made it into an orchestral suite. And so this is from that. It was an opera that was commissioned for television. There was a period of time oh. where operas were commissioned for television, probably the most famous one being Amal and the Night Visitors by uh, Minotti. Um, but Copeland didn't, wasn't as quite, quite as successful with this particular TV opera. <laughs> um, but it's, it is a portion of the opera does handle harvest, and actually uh, there are themes of harvest in other works of Aaron Copeland as well. hard to discern the meter now if you're not familiar with it so we'll step ahead it reminds me of like heading out in the morning to the vineyard Mm. like it does and this sort of bittersweet yeah i mean this has always kind of been a desert island piece of mine this is probably one of my favorite pieces easily in my top probably top 50 for sure why would you why do you say that I love the way Copeland uh, orchestrated things, which is to mean the vo- the instruments he chose to play certain parts. He just did that so beautifully, and there's a lot of really beautiful little solos and duos and trios, and also just the fact that it is really this big push, and the brass come in, and the horns have just these beautiful parts. 
I mean, I could talk about it a long time. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I mean, listen to me talking about harvest. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so now it's going to be really easy to hear the triple division. messes around with the meter a little bit and the feel throughout this, but that triplet, that division of three is present and evocative of harvest and, hmm. you know, labor, really. It's not noble. This is not nobility. That's, I like that you allude to that and, and talk about it not being noble because, and through meter, because I think that's one of the highlights of this podcast is like making things that are normally classical music and wine thought to be like hoity-toity or, you know, there's so many things that are like wine for the people trying to make it more easy to understand mm-hmm. and, or, you know, teaching people about it at a level that's like very easily comprehensible. And wine shouldn't, I mean, yes, it can be complicated and music can be really complicated, but in the end, they're both meant to just provoke joy yeah. and give us give us something to believe in, you know? Yeah. And so with wine, it's like this has been, people have been making music and making wine for gazillions of years, right? Mm-hmm. So why make them more complicated because they're layered? Well, good. Because yeah. who just needs one layer? For that, just mm-hmm. eat a spoonful of peanut butter, yeah. but don't put honey on it. Yeah. Don't put it on bread because now you're making layers, you know? And this is just like giving dimension to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. something otherwise... Simple. Okay, so should I talk a little bit about the wine just as we're... Yep, yep, and then, yeah, and then we'll listen to the climax, but after. Love it, okay. So the wine that we chose today, I wanted to bring a wine that was really delicious and guzzle-worthy, but simple. And so I chose a wine called Orleghi from a producer called Luberi. They are out of Rioja, and this is all fruit from the northern part of Rioja, Rioja La Vesa, which is like, just borders the Basque country. And what I like about it is this is really good quality, but humble wine. So they, you know, farm, well, they aren't farming this fruit, they're buying it, but it's fruit that's um, farmed sustainably, as they like to call it, which what does that mean? Who knows? But they're making an effort is (laughs) what we know. It's all native yeast to ferment it, and then it's mostly Tempranillo, but there's a little bit of a white grape called Viuda, which that was really common back in the day because you didn't have... The luxury of being like, hmm, I want to plant some Cabernet and I want to plant some Sauvignon Blanc and make it all. I have all this space in my basement for my 16 children um, and all my potatoes for all these different things. No, you just picked all your grapes and dumped it together. And it was like an yeah. insurance policy because some year some grapes ripened, other grapes didn't sure. fully. and all. So you could just always pick and you'd always have an, about the same amount of wine. And in this case, so they did that. They got some viuda, a small percentage of white grapes, mostly red grapes, over 95%. And then it's made by, they've tossed a bunch of whole clusters together, ferment. There's a brief maceration of a little over a week um, of, with the skins, with the juice. And, you know, it's bottled. This is 2019. This is brand new stuff. This is like bottled fresh, cheap and cheerful. I think this retails for like less than 15 bucks on a shelf and is just really emblematic of like when I go to the festivals in Rioja, usually I try not to drink swill, but sometimes you end up drinking swill. And after like one glass of swill, you're already paying for it. And this way, you know, if you're drinking this, it's about the same price as swill, but it's made so much better. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so this is like very, I think, emblematic of what you would taste at a harvest festival, like easy, 
drinking. I don't know. Yeah, what do you think about it? I think it's really delicious, and I think that it's so amazing that there's a white grape in here because it's still so dark. Mm-hmm. But that's because the Tempranillo, right, is like, is that one that has red flesh too? It isn't. No, it's not a oh. tincturier. It doesn't have red flesh, okay. but it does um, have a nice deep color to it. The way they've macerated it and they've done it at cool temperatures too, they've made sure to, you know, this is definitely not like a, a really light red or a dark rosé. It's definitely a, a deeply colored wine for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, it's really what pretty. Do you, do you think that it is, is there any complexity to it or not much? Um... I'd say it's pretty simple. Uh, I like that it's fruity and ripe, and and it's not super dry. It is a little bit, but I I just like the the ripeness of it is really delicious. But yeah. li- but it doesn't really like take me on a ride or anything. It's just and that's solid. Like that's what this type of wine is, right? Yeah. Straightforward. The the wine itself. So that carbonic maceration. I, I talked about whole cluster. They actually do have a partial carbonic maceration, which kind of lends itself to that like tutti frutti, but it still has some cut to it too. It still has some acidity, which is really nice. A dry wine, but that's definitely like you said, like nice and and ripe. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about before we listen to the kind of the climax of the Copeland piece, if you don't yeah, mind, for sure, are some harvest festivals that are known around the world. One that's probably the most famous is called La Paule and it's in Burgundy and you either have to be like invited to go or have lots of money. It's like it, what was once a like banquet for workers and employees has now become something that every year is like, there's a banquet, there's an auction at this really famous Auspice du Bon, it's called like this old hospital. And then there's a, this lunch at like noon at the Chateau du Merceau and Every video I've ever seen of La Paule is a shit show. Just everybody's drinking like gazillion dollar burgundies and like in tuxedos. And do I want to go someday? Sure, because I kind of want to know what that's like. Would I ever pay to go? God, no. But that's it's fascinating to like see. And everybody's got their little taste of vins, their little like how people used to taste wine in the day with these little silver necklace it's hard to explain anyway they like wear those around their necks these like metal things that used to be you you'd put a barrel sample in them and like you could see the clarity out of them because they were made out of silver but then you'd taste out of them everybody's got those around their necks and they're all just like drinking drc out of bottles and it's just like ridiculous that's one and that was i think first held in like the 1920s or something like that there are banquets all over the world. Uh, Ribera del Duero has a famous one in Oporto. They actually have, I've mentioned it in our port episode that we did, but they have a really interesting tradition that they follow. This is not a banquet, but a tradition where during harvest time, they will stomp the grapes in a lagar, meaning like a pool that's made out of concrete that's, you know, square in its, the way it's formed. And it is like uh, they will go... Six people will say, and they'll all be arm in arm, and they'll go walk to the end, and they'll walk to the, they'll turn around and walk to the end, and then after you know however many minutes, they'll turn and do the, they'll go the other way, so they're kind of making a crisscross fashion, but all together for four straight hours, and then they go wow. eat, and then they go drink and get wasted. <laughs> Everybody gets back in the lagar and like basically dances with like a <laughs> local little band for four more hours. Because if and I thought this was, I was like, wow, you know, that's like kind of a cool way to do hard. That's fun. And then I did it. 
And I was like, Jesus, that's a long time to be walking <laughs> from one side to the other. And so, yes, I do want to drink. And now I do want to dance in the yeah. Lagar and like <laughs> kind of swim in it. And it's like ridiculous. But it's like that has is something that has been done in Oporto region for centuries. Wow. It's interesting. San Mateo, again, I mentioned the Rioja big festival. Um, obviously, it's canceled now as, of, as all these are um, because of COVID. But... Um, it's offering, there's usually always a first crushing of grapes by someone in the wine slash governmental community. They do a little crush. They take the first juice out, or sometimes a grape bunch out of there, and they will like honor the city with it. And then after that, everybody's like, whoa, let's get drunk. It's, it's, it's funny, but they're offering um, to the, you know, the patron saint or the patron virgin of a certain town or a certain mm-hmm. area, which is kind of awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about a few more that go on around the world, but let's listen to that climax, shall we? Yeah, we'll just listen to the end of the Copeland because it's beautiful. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, let's just listen to it. And I mean, as you can sense, I mean, I, we've not heard it for a few minutes now, but there's kind of a lot of repetition of ideas here, just building, 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 adding more and more elements to it. Tubas. Glockenspiel. Wine is made. Fermentation has begun. (laughs) French horn. It ends also with what we would call an imperfect authentic cadence. So that's interesting too, because normally whoever's the highest voice would play tonic, which we've talked about, would play the note that... Mm -hmm. But here, the highest voices are on... Yeah. Okay, so they're on the fifth instead of... So it's a more open way to end... Than if we're capping everything. Oh my gosh! Because this is so. This is really all a great analogy for one another. Because you said, "Oh, it's repetitive and building upon." Mm-hmm. Harvest is really fucking repetitive. Yeah. And anybody that <laughs> yeah. thinks it's romantic, it's not. I it's mean, it's hard work. It's like man. a lot of hard work, and you're always, you know, the first three days you're doing all new stuff, and mm-hmm. then you're all doing the same stuff. And if you're Obviously, you know, there are positions such that you need to be paying more attention. Thankfully, that was one of my roles where you're more engaged with what's going on. But if you're a worker that's cutting grapes, sorting grapes at the sorting table, like that's beautiful and really boring, you know, if you're so that's, (laughs) but then you're also building on that by, you know, you get faster at what you do. Sometimes people that have been picking for years, now they're manning a pick or womaning a pick you know they're making it so they're telling people oh you go do that and you do this to make it quicker i also like when you said that it ends in a way that is different and unpredictable because most of the time harvest does too whatever Mm -hmm. you plan for 
is not usually what happens. Yeah. Another thing I really like about this piece, I, I was having a conversation with a friend a few days ago about how so many pieces in the world of classical music uh, have a climax about two-thirds of the way through the piece, and this is much more delayed. Um, but that's interesting, too, that the climax really comes right before the end and then dies down, as opposed to you know, having a climax 66% of the way through the piece, we're maybe 95% of the way through the piece when mm. this happens. And I find that really interesting. So you could also think of the piece Bolero, which we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Ravel's Bolero is, operates like that as well, where it yeah. happens way later. Although you could even argue that Bolero's climax is the end. But, uh, but it's just kind of fun. It sets it apart as well, not only with its sort of uncommon ending, but the fact that the climax comes so late. Hmm. And yeah. when you and I have talked about the that whole 60-ish percent in the climax thing, I wonder if like, and how that mimics nature, how with most of the time when you're receiving fruit and it's all romantic and cute and then it becomes like, holy shit and whoa, like there's always a time where there's like a big push, like all these vineyards are ripening at the same time, oh my God. And you mm -hmm. can't be like, well, I just kind of want to take that tomorrow because I kind of don't, I can't handle it today. No, it's like pick pick or be or not have it. Mm -hmm. And so there's always this like push that happens. I find the times I've done and been like assisting in a cellar where it's like, oh my gosh, how is this all going to be okay at once? And it ends up being, you have to be really efficient with your time. But I wonder if I've never thought about it when that happens, because it's usually not at the beginning and it's usually not at the end. It's right. somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so if it would be like after middle, that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go look at my notes now. It's going <laughs> to plague me until I um, until I find that out. Uh, a few more festivals that I want to talk about yeah. that are super cool, because I mentioned ones in Spain and ones around the world. There's one called the Durkheimer Wurstmarkt, and it's Ooh. in Bad Dürkenheim in Germany. So we're in the Rhine-Hessen, like south of Mainz, for those of you who know the German wine-growing area well, southern, southwestern Germany. And it's a 600-plus-year-old tradition of, like, drinking new wine and um, obviously old wine, too, but – and, like, eating – a lot of traditional foods and like just drinking and having a good time listening to music. There are fests in the Southern Hemisphere. There's one in Colchagua in Chile. There's one in Mendoza in Argentina. There's also one in the far off region of Tarija in Bolivia that they do in March every year. And I don't know, like I've never thought about going to a harvest festival in Bolivia. But that'd be amazing. I don't know. That'd be a good way to say Adios to COVID. And I know. Go hashtag twenty twenty one. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, it's just what a beautiful time of year. And right now we're recording this. It's late September. It's a good time of year to pay homage to to the people out there working so hard, cutting off their fingers, staying up twenty hours a day to give us the drink of the gods. The scores and pours. <laughs> Takes two to tango. Scores and boards. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Emily Reese and Joe Mott. You can find links to merchandise, a wine list, and a playlist, as well as support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We're on Instagram at scores and pours, and you can send us a direct message there as well if you want to contact us about anything questions and stuff like that. 
Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.